1: All right, let's talk a little bit, uh, Taylor Riggs, about that T-Mobile Sprint deal. Uh, John Butler here with me in New York City, Senior Telecom Services and Equipment Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining myself and Taylor. Obviously, this is a deal that is been watched very closely. For a long time. (laughs) Two years in the making. Yeah.
2: Hanging out there for two years. It's incredible and unprecedented in the sense that it was approved by the FCC. uh, And it was approved, more importantly, by the Department of Justice. And then a group of 13 states, including Washington, D.C., sued to block the deal for fear that uh, wireless prices could go up with three carriers in the u.s now instead of four yeah Um, my argument has always been that this deal is good for the industry and good for consumers because it's going to get 5g out there a lot more quickly number one and number two i don't think sprint would have made it alone and Mm -hmm. so we would have ended up with three carriers anyway so net net i I think good news sorry taylor
3: no 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 i'm just curious how much of a surprise this was because a lot of analysts that we were speaking to thought frankly that the states had a very good case is today's decision a surprise
2: it was a surprise that's a good point you know our litigation analyst jen re was siding with the state she attended the whole trial and she was like you know purely on the fundamentals she said the states really had a good case And when she was sort of handicapping the deal, I kind of pressed her on it, and she said, you know, I'm really sort of siding with the states here, because I think the judge is sort of a by-the-book kind of guy, and if you go by the book, the states really, in her opinion, had won. But, you know, T-Mobile, I think, had a very compelling case, which I just laid out, which was, look, at the end of the day, the whole point here is to block the deal in order to protect consumers But if the deal doesn't go through, Sprint's not going to make it and it'll be bad for consumers in the end. And I really, as an analyst looking at Sprint's fundamentals and T-Mobile's fundamentals, it was easy to sort of make the case that T-Mobile was making. I think they were right.
1: All right. So if you're sitting in Dallas at AT AT&T headquarters, uh, you bummed about this. How does it change your strategy?
2: Yeah, I do not think it's a good development for Verizon or AT&T because without getting into any of the details on it, the spectrum that Sprint has on a nationwide basis in the mid in what's called mid-band spectrum is ideal for 5G. In fact, in the industry they call it Goldilocks spectrum. And so T-Mobile now has instant access to that and will be able to really sort of get first mover advantage in terms of offering nationwide 5G. And that's particularly bad news for Verizon since they have pinned all their growth hopes on 5G. AT&T has kind of spread their bets beyond wireless into media and so forth. So. If you're sitting in Dallas, it's not good news, but you're taking it a little bit better than you are in Bedminster New Jersey. Right, yeah, (laughs) if
1: you're sitting across the river from us, maybe even worse.
3: Yeah, John, you know, I'm curious about who else in this merger benefits. Craig Craig Moffitt over at Moffitt Nathanson had said that Sprint now can avoid a massive bailout by SoftBank. Did Sprint need this deal more than T-Mobile?
2: Oh, definitely, Taylor. Um, As I said, you know, they, really, I'm sure, put forth a failing firm argument. In other words, if the deal doesn't go through, we're ultimately not going to make it. I mean, I wasn't privy to those discussions, but that would be my guess. And, um, you know, sort of what I, I was jokingly referring to, the blast radius of the deal is fairly big. You know, I think the tower companies... Uh, like American Tower and Crown Castle, in the near-term benefit from that accelerated 5G rollout. But longer term, when T-Mobile begins to rationalize the two networks, it's bad news for them. I think the same is true of Nokia and Ericsson, which supply network equipment. And,
1: And sorry to interrupt you, but just because that means there are fewer companies essentially investing and competing.
2: Well, there's that, and also T-Mobile is essentially going to shut down Sprint's network. They're going to migrate those subscribers over to its own network. To be fair, they're going to be putting all the spectrum into service and probably using some of of Sprint's towers, but they're going to be closing probably over 15,000 sites, and so that... Net-net in the long run is not constructive to tower company growth. How about for consumers? Good, bad, indifferent? What do you think? I think indifferent to good. Like it's it's a little bit early to tell, but I, I think if if I'm right and T-Mobile gets 5G out there quickly, I think that's good for consumers. I think the fear that wireless prices are going up is unfounded. Interesting. You know, wireless service really is sort of a commodity service yeah. now if you raise your price someone else is going to lower it and right. i don't think one fewer carrier in the market is
1: going to make a big difference yeah competition among those big names certainly it's uh, tough seems yeah. fierce it's really right. heavy john butler jb senior telecom services and equipment analyst for bloomberg intelligence been following this deal through its near completion it's been uh, hanging out there a long time oh,
4: what's going
5: on? What's going on?
1: All right, so we know that there have been efforts, Taylor, to make the asset management business more diverse. Let's see how that's going. Robert Rabin joins us, president and founder of the Rabin Group, uh, also executive director of the Diverse Asset Managers Initiative, joining us on the phone from Washington. Robert, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having us and drawing attention to this issue. Right. Well, it's an important one. It's one that we talk about a lot here, you know, given our core constituency and, candidly, a, a real lack of diversity. So tell us about the DAMI uh, 2020 survey.
6: Well, the Diverse Asset Managers Initiative is, a, is an independent effort to draw attention to the fact that we need to increase allocations to asset managers uh, who are of color and women, that we have a high-performing cohort in 2020 of asset management firms run by people of color, run by women, but for some reason they are underutilized. So after a couple years of working on this, I think we've homed in that a major choke point are the investment consulting firms. Mm. For those in the audience that don't know, those are the search firms. If you're a typical foundation or endowment or corporation, you may not want to curate asset management on your own, and so you outsource it. And you go to a search firm like you, like you would for a board member or a, or a CEO. And it's these search firms that have enormous control over who's picked to manage money. Um, and what we discovered is the search firms themselves are overwhelmingly um, not diverse. And so this survey is an attempt to draw attention to the fact that the people responsible for curating a diverse pool of asset managers uh, themselves are um, lacking in many ways.
3: You know, Robert, I'm out here in San Francisco, so all that we care about is big data, as you know. So curious to know from your survey, what does the data tell you about the outperformance of returns from women-led asset management companies, for example?
6: Well, two things. Thank you, Taylor, for asking. Two things. Our data, what we're releasing today is the demographic information about these major search firms, the fact that they're overwhelmingly male and that they're almost completely white. Separately, and we work very, very closely with people in the field who are trying to diversify, there's some fantastic studies out there by the Knight Foundation, by Illumin and Stanford, by Joshua Lerner, who's at Harvard Business School, that all show the same thing. Essentially, firms owned and managed by women or people of color are at least at par with firms owned by white people. That is, their, we're, we're getting the same returns. When you bore down even deeper into the data, you see that in the top quintile, there's an overperformance by firms owned by women or people of color. We don't have to go that far to say that women or people of color do better than white people. That's not the point. The point is, People who are not diversifying those who manage their assets are missing out on performance. If you've got high-performing women and people of color, the question is, why aren't you working with them?
1: Well, and, and Robert, I guess one of the questions is, are we getting to the point, or how close are we to the point, as we seem to be getting to with issues like climate change and those types of investments, where money will actually move or, or won't show up? You know, is the money going to, to sort of walk or, as I say, you know, sort of not be present if there isn't a certain diversity among managers?
6: Well, I wish I, wish I could say the cup was half full, but it's not. Yeah. This is the only sector in American life that I have encountered. I've been doing diversity work for 25 years where people quibble with the premise In all other aspects of American public life, boards, C-suites, retail, nobody quibbles with the premise that diversity improves performance. Here, CIOs, investment committee members of corporations look at you and say, why does it matter? And so we're answering that question by showing there's high-performing women and people of color, and you're not working with them, so you're leaving money on the table. We are not yet at the point, although you drawing attention to it and giving airtime to it and talking about it is crucial, we're not at the point where we have critical mass of asset allocators turning to CIOs, turning to outside consultants and saying, why are you leaving money on the table for my institution by not working with all the talent that's there? Reporting and tracking utilization, that is, who are you working with, is a first step. You'll see in our survey that we're releasing today, two-thirds of the investment consulting firms, 20 of the 30, won't release their numbers of yeah. their own
1: employees. Robert Rabin of the Rabin Group. We're never back down.
2: Yeah, we're down
1: the All right, so this is a story that is just Taylor made for Taylor Riggs and myself. We yes. both loved it. Uh, Anders Mellon is here. He wrote it. Uh, he's a writer for Bloomberg. He does so many things. We often talk to him about how much people get paid. Uh, in this case, he was paying a very steep price More about with his pain, body, paying in pain. Joel Weber, uh, that's the voice you hear as well. He's here in our Bloomberg Interactor Broker Studio. All right, Anders, I could not stop reading this. I mean, you had me at the headline. If you love Tough mutters, then you have to try, quote, Everesting. Uh, what? What is this? How did, how did you get involved in such an endeavor?
5: So a while ago, I read a book about this um Funny guy named Jesse Yitzler, who is a serial entrepreneur, has had a very colorful past. And now he's gotten really into life coaching and, and he's also an, an ultra marathoner. And-, and,
1: th- and we should say, I mean, people, if they don't know him, they don't know his name. They know his work. I mean, he co founded uh, Marquee Jet, he helped build Zico Coconut Water, which he sold to Coca Cola. He's written a bestseller. Like, this guy's for real.
5: He's definitely for real. 50 Cent was once his intern in the 90s when he ran a music consulting business. And um, he decided to to mix up his life coaching business with his love for endurance sports and created an event where he essentially brought endurance sports to the masses by um, renting out a ski slope for a weekend, bringing people there, having them haul up the ski slope enough times so that the altitude that you gain... Um, cumulatively, ends up to Mount Everest. And that uh, would be
0: 2,9029. 29, that's right. Which you did. Yes. On Mount Stratton. Yes. Which is up in Vermont. It's and it's 17
5: ascents? 17
0: ascents. So, so after, like, number three, what were you thinking to yourself?
5: You just take it in very small increments. Because if you think about it as a whole, then it's just overwhelming. And you just end up sitting down and, you know, how am I going to do this? And Which you did. You crawled. I, I crawled for the first couple of ones, and then eventually I found a, par- a pair of ski poles, which were extremely helpful. <laughs> oh, so you didn't bring ski poles? You no, were like, I'll, so just, I'll power through this? So being a journalist, I figured that I was going to go up there and and maybe go up and down twi- once or twice with people and mostly hang out, talk to folks, and get, get the atmosphere. And then you got the bug. Then I got up there, and I realized that so I'm 31. I realized that I was all, pretty much the youngest Person there out of the 200 participants and felt compelled. <laughs> I can't to, not compete. I just, there was no, I mean, I'm, I'm a former competitive swimmer. I just could not just right. stay on the sidelines. So I brought, you know, a, a, um, running pants and, and a couple of sweaters and like a beanie, but it was raining. A nor'easter had just dried across the landscape the, the day before. So it was muddy and it was cold and it was snowing at the top of the mountain. So whereas most other people had, they just had spent a fortune on protective gear and
1: the right boots. I didn't even have ski poles, but luckily I found a spare pair just hiding behind a corner. (laughs) So Taylor, I mean, this seems like the sort of thing, I, I mean, all kidding aside, like you are a very experienced marathoner this is the sort of thing that that appeals to you. But you also, uh, being out there in San Francisco, know that, I mean, this is very much in in the zeitgeist, right, as they say.
3: A hundred percent. There's such an outdoor culture here. And I think the quote from the story, Jason, that I love the most is, to feel pain is to feel alive, which is why I think between both you and me, we've done easily double digit marathons combined. And so I think the point, Anders, or my question is, does this come down to, the thrill of it, right? Like when you feel pain, you're at most alive. What's sort of the reason why someone would wanna do this?
5: Yeah, that's the question that I asked pretty much everybody that I ran into on the mountain over the 20 plus hours that it took me to to accomplish this. Um, and I got a few different answers. Some people were there because they were feeling a midlife crisis and, you know, they, they uh, needed to do something to break out of the rut. Others were there simply because they, they kind of never really tested themselves physically and didn't really know what they were going, what they could, uh, you know, go up against. And,
0: There's also been academic research, which you cite uh, a study of tough mutters. This is my favorite In the part. Journal of Consumer Research, I, I actually do love this quote of all the quotes in the issue that I've been using to <laughs> talk about the issue. This is my favorite. By flooding the consciousness with gnawing unpleasantness, pain provides a temporary l- relief from the burdens of self-awareness, the authors wrote, and helps participants create the story of a fulfilled life. I was like,
1: that's my CrossFit right there. Yeah. It's like, I do CrossFit oh, for that. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So what did you hear from, from people? so many people were saying that i've
5: never really challenged myself physically and many of them work white collar jobs are very accomplished maybe run their own companies and they just feel like this is yet this is the next frontier of what they need to conquer and really see what they're so where else can you do this because you know stratton is
0: vermont but like you can scale this and do it many different places right
5: yeah so the guys that that organize this event they also have one in idaho and they um they will have one they have one in in arizona as well i believe
1: and so taylor you know i mean this goes to conversations you and i have had on air and off about sort of the viability of this industry in a lot of ways right you know Mm -hmm. that things sort of come in and out of, of vogue you know what do you make of of this
3: You're totally right. I wanted to ask Andres Mellon how much this was going to cost me when I uh, take the whole TV crew out to the uh, Arizona (laughs) or the Idaho and you attempt to approve my expense report. (laughs) Andres, how much is this going to set us all back?
5: So it's uh, around $4,000 per person. But it should be said, even though that's pricey for. going on a really long walk. <laughs> um, it's a full-service event. You get very well taken care of. You have a 20-week training program uh, r- going up to it. And while while on the mountain, you are s- kind of surrounded by the who's who of endurance sports. Uh, there, there's a bunch of... Um, ex-elite triathletes um, that hang around. There was an ex-Olympic swimmer who gave uh, information about nutrition. And there's a guy that ran across the Sahara Desert a decade ago who was also hanging out with us on the mountain and telling stories.
1: Well, and it is, I mean, which speaks to this whole idea that, I mean, there is this community piece of this, this desire in a... In an age, and this goes to something Taylor is experiencing every day out there in Silicon Valley. You know this notion of, in a social media life, what are you actually doing with your body, and how are you interacting with other people in a very real uh, and visceral way? And how Mellon, much pain are you putting on your shoulders? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Instead of just tweeting. Yeah. In any case, not that there's <laughs> anything wrong with that. andrews Mellon, uh, congrats uh, as our uh, colleague Devin. You're gonna do it again. Would, would you do it? Uh, maybe I'll stay on the sidelines. Okay, night. all right. <laughs> exactly. Are you going to do one, Joel? Should we do one together? No, absolutely not. All right, good. No, I'm joking. Yes, of course. Yeah, Taylor and I are going to go. You, you can join Taylor and me. She's in. When me get back east, Taylor. 100%. We're going to do hundred percent. Yeah. We're oh not doing
3: God. the Philly Marathon together. We're doing this. We're
1: doing this. All right. Thank you both so much. All right, so it's one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg terminal, and that's not surprising to anyone who follows Wall Street because this is about one well-known firm that hasn't always been in the traditional business of Wall Street, creeping in, maybe more than creeping in, coming in with a bang. Uh, Natalie Harrison is Leverage Finance Editor for Bloomberg. She edited this piece, and it's called KKR Undercuts Wall Street with a last-minute $1 billion loan. So a bold move, Natalie. I was telling you uh, right before we came on air that I happened to have lunch with an old friend in the private equity business uh, today, and he had just read this headline, and he sort of raised an eyebrow and said, this is an aggressive move by KKR to, to get into a business that they're often asking other people to do for them.
7: Exactly. So usually, as you say, KKR would be going to their bankers looking for financing for buyouts. In this situation, we had a company called AC Products. Mm -hmm. Um, They were looking to make an acquisition. Um, They managed to get that financing from a group of banks. It looked like a done deal. And then all of a sudden, KKR swoops in with a big loan, a billion dollars. Right. Right. But, you know, they snatched the business away from the banks. And, and this
1: was coming from, the original package was coming from, you know, not just, you know, names we've never heard of, but Barclays among them. I mean, these are well-known players in the financial world.
7: And Barclays had a relationship with this company. Um, they had underwritten an, uh, another acquisition last year. Um, and that loan had struggled to sell. And they'd actually been left on the hook with, I think, about half of the debt. Wow. Um, so, you know, there's usually this sort of relationship between banks and companies that the company decided maybe wasn't that important and they've gone for the, the cheaper option with KKR.
3: Natalie, I'm wondering if this is the most obvious sign yet that Jason needed to hear that these private equity firms, frankly, have so much cash, they literally don't know what to do.
7: Well, the you know, the direct lending um, business, there's, more than 800 billion of assets under management now. they have to deploy that. and you know some of these bigger players like KKR and Apollo, you know they're, they're making bigger loans now right. it's, it, the 1 billion loan is becoming more frequent.
1: Well, and it is interesting because it does seem to speak Natalie and and I think this is part of what Taylor is alluding to to this sort of sea change we've seen, especially as it relates to private credit, if we go back and you know this business so well, if we go back a decade or certainly before the financial crisis, this was not really a business that the KKRs and the Blackstones and the uh, Carlyles and the Apollos were in. This was largely the provenance uh, of the big banks. Many of them, maybe they're not completely out, but their footprint is a lot smaller.
7: Well, they suddenly stepped back from sort of middle market lending after yeah. the financial crisis, and this is where this all began. You know, where direct lenders would be lending to companies with like EBITDA of less than fifty million. Right, um, and that's just grown and grown and grown. Um, and what we hear, that's going to continue.
3: Natalie, I'm wondering if you can expand on this a little bit more and talk to us about if this is it's sort of the beginning of what we can expect to be a a broader trend that this isn't a one-off this isn't a kkr offset this isn't an ac products one-off that this is really just the beginning of a much bigger trend
7: um it's definitely a trend yeah um we'll see how it evolves um i think leveraged lending has always been competitive it's we've had um Japanese banks, um, European banks trying to break into the U.S. market, and they've struggled. Right. I don't know how this turns out for them. Um, I don't know that the big players like Barclays go away, but maybe they lose more buyout financing and they're left to do more repricings.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and it's interesting, Taylor. You know, I think about the idea, and, and I wonder if you hear this from folks out in Silicon Valley. And, and this goes back to your earlier point about private equity firms having so much money, this notion that they're looking for other things to do. They're often, and we had a conversation about this earlier this week or late last week, you know, private equity firms, big private equity firms often sort of dipping down into growth equity, maybe mm-hmm. even uh, sort of venture capital as well. I'm sure you're hearing that out there, right?
3: Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, and you know this story better than anyone, Jason. There's so much cash chasing too few investments. And I was going to ask this question to Elaine and Vince in the last segment as well, is you talk about all these asset bubbles out there. Yeah. If there really are a lot of asset bubbles and hyped up private credit you know, valuations, uh, what does this mean for some of these companies that are making these deals and and loaning them out? And I imagine this, like, uh, like Natalie has smartly said, just the beginning of a bigger trend, especially with cash cheap, 2%, yeah.
1: 1%. Absolutely. No, that's a really good uh, tie to make as well. All right. Natalie Harrison, our thanks to her, Leverage Finance Editor for Bloomberg. She had a hand in one of the most read stories of the day, KKR, undercutting Wall Street with a last minute $1 billion loan. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Alan Zaffron back with us, founding partner, co CEO at IEQ Capital. He joins us on the phone just down the road from Taylor Riggs in San Francisco. He's in Foster City, California. Alan, <clears throat> excuse me, great to talk to you again.
4: Great to be on, Jason Taylor. It's so beautiful. I can see you across the bay here in your office there in the city. I know. I know.
3: Jason is so jealous because you and I are waving at each other across from from the bay, and he's <laughs> stuck in cold New York.
1: I know. I mean, yeah. I have to say, I I am living wrong here. Uh, you two are out there uh, living it up with uh, some gorgeous weather. So, you know, Alan, uh, you sent over some notes which uh, really got me thinking Uh, Because, you know, we spend so much time in in this segment, as we should, you know, looking at the market that day. And and yet, uh, sometimes it's worth taking a little bit of a step back. And it sounds like you did that recently. You're there in Silicon Valley. You're talking to venture capitalists, private equity guys. They aren't necessarily, unless maybe they've got a company going public uh, that day or recently, as caught up in the vicissitudes, as it were, of the public market. What's your message to them? Uh, My message is
4: let's keep everything in context. It's amazing the world is living in such negativity and divisiveness. And if you actually step back and look at some really broad trends, and I'm talking looking over decades and decades, if not a century or so, here's what's happened. You've had massive improvements in issues like the following, extreme poverty rates. If you go back 200 years ago, 90% of the world's population was what you'd say, extremely, extreme poverty. It's less than 10% today. You've got global malaria death rates that have plummeted in the last 15 years by 50%. You've got literacy rates much higher than before. You've got literally, uh, 30 years ago, you had only about 5 billion people with electricity. Now almost the entire world, over 7 billion have electricity. You've got life expectancies that, A couple hundred years ago, people on average globally lived about age 32. People are now living on average globally over age 70. All these things are massive improvements. And so when we get caught up in the day-to-day, month-to-month, year-to-year challenges, problems, issues, the trend is up and to the right in terms of how an economist would say uh, the benefits are to your own welfare. And it, it pays out in spades over time. So it's just frustrating in a world of negativity There are a lot of well-intentioned people in the world doing a lot of good things, both for-profit and non-profit. It just gets lost in the noise today.
3: You know, Alan, I think one of my favorite things amidst all these negative headlines is you get everyone, go to cash, right? The world is ending, go to cash. I imagine you are not advising clients to go to cash. Where should you be investing then as you take a look at a more holistic uh, approach and avoid some of the day-to-day volatility?
4: You should be investing completely in alignment with your emotional temperament. Mm. <laughs> That's the real yeah. answer. Wow. Fundamentally. You really, like are, you really are in Silicon, Silicon Valley, Valley so Alan Zafrin. <laughs> I am. Here's a, look, here's a simple framework. Three buckets. You've got to keep enough money in cash for rainy days, emergencies, and, and spending needs and one-time upfront projects. And everybody's number is different. It could be three months of spending. It could be three years of spending. That's one side of the bucket. Way over on the other side of the bucket, almost everybody, including myself, has a little gambling habit. We all like to bet on the Super Bowl, or for all I know, it's my friend's new biotech company, or who knows, whatever it is. Keep those bets really small. Whatever's in the middle, that's your long-term savings. Put aside cash for rainy days and emergencies. Put aside a little money for all that gambling habit. Everything else, you should be a long-term investor. That means you don't have to dip and sell stocks when they're down in a panic because you already put enough cash aside. That means you don't have to hit home runs because you're already trying to hit home run with what you're gambling with. Hit singles and doubles with conservative, balanced stocks and bonds and maybe occasional non-public alternative investments and balance it out and let compounding and time work in your favor.
1: That's, That's the game plan. So what do you worry most about? I mean, because it feels like even out in Silicon Valley, maybe especially in Silicon Valley, you're hyper aware of some of the bigger existential threats uh, out there. What's the one that you think investors need to worry about the most?
4: Investors need to worry worry most about themselves. They're their own worst enemy. People, by definition, sell when things are falling and they're in a panic. And people, by definition, get greedy and buy, buy, buy as things go higher and higher. So either do yourself a sanity check and make sure you have enough assets safely put away so that when things fall apart you can tolerate it or find a third party, a friend, a relative, a rabbi, a psychologist or an investment advisor who can keep you right in the guardrails. That's what I worry about. I don't, you know, all the other things in life we can't control. What we control is the limits about which we put risk out on the table. I would argue Taylor it's actually a pretty good time to invest in stocks, personally, I think. I think this market has more to go, but I wouldn't put all my eggs in one basket. I'd still stay disciplined.
3: I wonder, broadly speaking, we talk about equities now back up near record highs. You have 10-year yields continuing to fall. We just had a big conversation on private assets, KKR, so much cash. They're now lending out uh, to other buyout companies. Are there asset bubbles out there?
4: Um, There might be selected asset bubbles. There was talk here last year, a lot of VCs I spoke with argued that a lot of SaaS software as a service businesses seemed overvalued. Mm -hmm. And in fact, fact, you saw that even in the public markets, the handful of businesses that came public had a pretty significant correction last year, if you take a look. But, you know, and uh, the flip side of that is uh, you see retail properties are still plummeting. So that's the converse of a bubble, but it could still fall, right, with the challenges with the Amazons of the world. Um, I would say, though, there's here's the real issue. When interest rates, risk-free rates are this low, as long as people think there's growth, they'll pay for that risk because the absolute return that they commit need is lower than before because the risk-free rate is paying them less than before. So... I still think stocks can make sense when, if you pay 20 times earnings, you're getting a 5% yield back on your money. That's 3% more than a treasury bond. That's a wide spread. That's why stocks are probably still relatively attractive versus bonds.
1: All right. Alan Zafrin, thank you so much. Always a thoughtful discussion with you, providing us some good context in the midst of still kind of a confusing market, even though—and part of the confusion is, it continues to go up and up. And a founding partner, co CEO of IEQ Capital. He joined us on the phone from Foster City, California. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.